Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about when China first attacks and conquers Korea. We also take a brief but relevant side tour to discuss the Eurasian steppes. In the last episode, we concluded the war between, or we led up to the war between the Han Dynasty and Gojoseon in 109 BCE. And we can say with a lot of certainty that this is the first time China, at least as a people and state as we know it, has attacked Korea as a state and people as we know it. But first, let's take a step back and look at the broader geopolitical environment, which involves China and another powerful entity, which I'm going to explain in a minute, and how that leads to that fateful war. We'll then get into the details of the war. First, a quick primer or kind of a a quick outline of China history relevant to this point. So while Korea, and frankly most of the rest of the world, was still evolving from Neolithic hunter-and-gatherers to tribes of subsistence farmers to larger groups with elaborate burial mounds requiring social stratification, what was happening in the West was especially remarkable given this. In the larger, more fertile, and more populous center of China, a people had already invented a written language, the only Neolithic language that survives to this day in daily use. The Shang Dynasty, or Shang as it's pronounced in Korean, the first historically proven dynasty of China, unites a large swath of territory around 1500 BCE. During its next, uh, during its roughly 500-year reign, its extraordinary bronze casting skills would be among the most advanced feats of human endeavor recorded in the world at the time. It's also when we find evidence of the first Chinese characters preserved on turtle bones. The Zhou Dynasty, or pronounced Zhu in Korean, would defeat the Shang in t- 1045 BCE, and the victorious Zhou would cut up the sizable empire to parcel it out amongst their kinsmen. And in time, these territories themselves would become small kingdoms. They include the Yan, Jin, Han, Wei, Qi, Lu, Tang, and Song. And if you recognize those names, it's because all the later dynasties of China would refer to this list of names when selecting their dynasty names as a symbol of their legitimacy and a tie to the phenomenally unbroken history of China. One of these kingdoms, Yan, encompassed the far northeastern reach of China, including Liaoning Peninsula on its eastern flank and its capital city in its western flank, which they named Ji. Ji is remarkable for being situated right where the flat northern Chinese plains meet the mountains that separate greater China from the steppes. That's why the Great Wall of China was built just north of this capital city, which you may recognize by its modern name, Beijing a small city of about 21 million people. And if you want to know the deep historical relations of Korea and China, you would do well to know at least this fact, that China's capital city then and China's capital city today was deeply involved with Korean matters as early as the first millennium BCE. Directly east of Yan is present-day North Korea, and that's where a lot of our story for this episode starts. The long-lived but declining Zhou dynasty, which by the end was barely held together by just a titular crown, would be displaced by the Qin dynasty in 221 BCE, itself a very interesting state with a strong ideological raison d'etre, 
which itself would only last one generation to around 206 BCE, finally replaced by the Han Dynasty, the dynasty we all know and love, which would find some serious unification, stability, and consolidation. It's after these turbulent times when the Chinese emperor empire is new, um, at least for the dynasty, that we still that we see Korea enter its historical records. Before we continue, we need to discuss at length, actually, the historical source that we're going to be relying very, very heavily on called the Shiji. In Korean, uh, they call it Sagi, which basically just means history. So important is this work to the history of China and therefore to early Korea that all you have to do is use uh, the two Chinese characters to represent Shiji and the rest of you know the Chinese world will know what you're talking about. The Zhou dynasty is well documented into the spring and autumn period or Chunchu Shide in Korean and the Warring States period. In fact, these periods are named after the histories written about them. But there isn't a ton of written records on the Qin period from around 221 to 206 BCE. And for that matter, we rely on the Shiji. It's written by Shima Qian. In Korean, it's pronounced Sama Chan, which he finished in 94 BCE. He covers not just the fall of Zhou, but the Qin period as well and the Han Dynasty. He wrote about Gojoseon, as you may remember from our last episode, and it's worth reporting how high in esteem Shima Qian is held. Amongst historians of China, well, amongst historians in general, he is known simply as, quote, the Grand Historian, or Tai Shi Gong in, in, Jap- in Chinese. His father, no slouch himself, and his father is actually nicknamed the Grand or the Great Astrologer, and all you have to do is mention that nickname and people know exactly who you're talking about. His dad's name was uh, Sima Tian. Uh, Simatan. So his father's ambition was to write the complete history of China, but only wrote some preliminary sketches before his death. Chiang inherited his father's position as court historian and made it his life's mission to complete his father's goal. And that he certainly did, but not before in 99 BCE, he would end up on the wrong side of a dispute with the emperor. And as you will, um, as you'll find out later in this episode, a Han emperor is not someone you want to mess with. So given the choice of death or castration, Qian chose castration so that he could complete his work and complete it he did. He not only wrote um, about kind of the official history of China up until that point, but about all the nations that China came into contact with during that time, of course, including Gojoseon. So for Koreans, he is the best reliable source for descriptions of, of Gojoseon. Starting around the middle of the first millennia BCE, so roughly around 500 BCE, the uh, Gojoseon has been mixing it up with two main groups of people, the Yan dynasty to their west and the constant nomadic tribes, or I'm sorry, the nomadic tribes constantly inhabiting the steppes north of them. We know this from archaeological evidence as well as historical record. Much of the pottery and metal work found in present-day Korea show influences from Yan or Greater China. And again, I'll bring in England and the Roman Empire as a comparable because it, it kind of fits, at least for now. Much like the history of early England is the story of an indigenous people who are greatly affected by one of the greatest civilizations in the world, so too is the history of early Korea the story of an indigenous people who 
come into contact with the mighty civilization of China. Very tellingly, Zhou knife money, so Zhou, the, the, the dynasty Zhou, has been found as far south as the center of the Korean peninsula. Zhou knife money was used as a currency in the Zhou Empire, and the different kingdoms issued their own types as well, including the Yan. So among the many artifacts that have survived since that time are these uh, metal blades, and they're called Zhou knife. It was basically used as currency. It's an early form of coin, although they don't look like coins. They actually look like straight-edge racers, and a lot of them have these really cool symbols um, burned into them. Some have fancy handles, and they all have rings on the far, ed far edge of their handle so that they can be strung together and therefore very portable. We know that the Yan and the Koreans um, uh, interacted a lot during that time. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I was saying how Korea was, was dealing at the time with the Yan dynasty and another very powerful entity. And I hesitate to call them a people because it's not really a people that they're dealing with. In this case, it's a region. It's an eco-region, which we'll broadly call the Eurasian steppes. So broadly speaking, the Eurasian steppes is the huge swath of land that extends horizontally across almost the entire Eurasian landmass, roughly from the Danube River in modern-day Hungary all the way to the east in Manchuria. The eastern edge of the Eurasian steppes actually ends right where Gojosin begins. So that's very relevant because when you look at all these civilizations that border the Eurasian steppes, you see a story of um, conflict and raids and just a lot of conflict going on, a lot of action. And Korea certainly saw a lot of the action in the same way that China did. Here's a great description of the steppes that I found on the internet. Steppes are dry, grassy plains occurring in intemperate climates between the tropic and polar regions. They usually receive 25 to 50 centimeters of annual rainfall. Because of this small amount, steppes can grow grasses and short shrubs, but not tall trees. Sometimes the Eurasian steppe can have very extreme temperatures. It can reach up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer and can fall down to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter. It gets so cold in the winter because there are no tall trees to block the fierce winds and no clouds to keep the heat from leaving to the upper atmosphere. The Eurasian steppe has a unique climate cycle where the steppe has 10 or more years of good rain and then just as many years of drought. The soil in the steppes has a lot of minerals, but not so much organic matter as a result of such little amount of rainfall in the steppes, unquote. You know, I'd say the history of Korea and, of course, China is not just their dealings with the polities around them, but their permanent, complicated relationship with this eco-region. This eco-region is not good for agriculture. It's not enough rain. But it's also not barren because it's got a lot of tall grasses which can feed large herds of animals, such as horses, cattle, goat, and sheep. In fact, horses started out as a cheap winter meat, not as just transportation or you know, companionship, I guess, is what they provide nowadays. Uh, since cattle and sheep don't know how to use their hooves to break through the snow crust to get it fodder below. So when you look at the horses that came from more southern regions where the weather was a little better, you'll see a lot of cattle being raised in that southern portion of um, kind of near Central Asia. But when you get to especially the Eurasian steppes across Siberia and Mongolia and into Manchuria, they're relying on horses, not cattle. Horses are much more portable, um, more, much more mobile. And as, as I just mentioned, 
um, they can survive a winter in a cold uh, location like that, unlike cattle. So the steppes are not fertile enough to be uh, farmed, but just fertile enough to support a human population. The humans that grow up in this ecoregion base their lives around the livestock that feeds them, so they are nomadic. And once they learn to tame the horse, which happens near the Ural Mountains around 3500 BCE, they are highly mobile. Neolithic horses were shown to be 13 to 14 hands high, which is big enough to ride. Tribal raiding on horseback starts. Mast-mounted archery occurs during the final bronze and early iron transition around 900 BCE. And you get the progenitor to world terrors, including Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. The Eurasian steppes are just north of all the farming societies in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Turkey, and East Asia. Because the region itself is so huge and spread out, it acts as a kind of natural highway for those who travel across it, and in fact, the Silk Road would cut right across it as well. The settled farmlands south of this highway are peopled with sedentary farmers who don't travel much at all, whereas the nomads to the north travel east and west much more easily. In that way, even though their population is not as dense, they are able to pick up some of the innovations from their farmer neighbors. Horse domestication and riding spread from west to east along the steppes, while the use of bronze cauldrons spread from east to west. Language and blood were also somewhat mixed in this way. Recent archaeological evidence shows that these nomads didn't subsist only on their livestock, though. Starting very early on, they supplemented their diets with grain. So the big question is, how did they get access to this grain? They certainly weren't farming it on the steppes. And, uh, you know, the easy answer is to say they just went and stole it from the farmers because that's what a lot of the coverage focuses on. It's kind of a more interesting story to talk about the the scary nomads that came come into a village and ransack, you know, their stores and take their grain or whatever. But most of the time they were trading with their southern neighbors. Um, in between bouts of warfare and hostility, which certainly occurred and which was certainly very, very frequent, for the most part, um, they, they got along. Uh, they coexisted peacefully because there was stuff to be traded. The farmers needed something that they didn't have, which included horses and cattle and uh, leather and meat, etc. And of course, the the nomads had, uh, I'm sorry, the farmers had something the nomads didn't want, which was, didn't have, which was, uh, which was food. So it was a good, good change, good exchange. There's no consensus on the history of all the peoples that lived in the steppes. I mean, there should be, but obviously without any written, written record, um, it's hard to keep track and uh, keep track of where people were going and where they were coming from. But as we see more and more DNA studies being done on the skeletons found across the steppes, I think we're going to get a really good picture and a really good chronology of how the various tribes interacted with each other and moved across uh, the steppes. Getting back to our story, what we do know through the writings of the Chinese and corroborated by archaeology and now DNA is that by around 300 BCE, the various tribes and peoples occupying the eastern reaches of the steppes around Mon Mongolia and Manchuria had organized into a confederacy that we now call, or they call, the Xiongnu. In Korean, it's pronounced Hyungno. And like steppes people usually are, the Xiongnu are a real threat to all the farming societies south of them. 
Historian Ryoto speculates that, quote, the Shangnu came from Manchuria near where the Donghu, uh, or Dongho in Korean, lived. The Dongho were a tribe or tribal union in northeast China that included ancient Koreans. Many noteworthy, noteworthy tombs, perhaps of kings, attributable to the Shangnu culture found in Manchuria, seem to confirm their Manchurian origin, unquote. Others speculate that they were a nomadic ethnic minority living near Shanbei. Regardless, we know that during the Zhou dynasty, they are living near Shanxi when they are forced out by the quote-unquote Han people. I quote again from Ryoto, The first significant clash with the Chinese army occurred in 245 BCE when Li Mu, a commander of the Zhao, defeated the Xiongnu, the Donghu, and other barbarian peoples in the same military campaign. Soon after China's unification, the Xiongnu suffered another attack from the Qin. Uh, Tumon, the ruler of the Xiongnu, fled north. In 209 BCE, his son, uh, Mo Dun, would regroup and then create the empire of the Xiongnu. And in true tribal fashion, he came to power by ordering his men to kill his own father in 209 BCE. This is one of those times when the steppes people have unified into a single confederation. And when that happens, the world changes. So the way I view it is you have this amorphous, huge mass, ever-changing mass of tribes, nomadic tribesmen that are galloping across this enormous, you know, the largest landmass on, on, uh, on the planet. And uh, they're constantly shifting around and they're following where, the, where their cattle and horses take them. For the most part, they're um, not unified, but when history, when events conspire to bring them together into a unified unit, uh, that's when really, really big things happen. And if you need an example, just look at Genghis Khan and the Mongols. And the Xiongnu was another one of these examples. If you want to know how powerful the Xiongnu had become by that time, consider that the Great Wall of China, as we know it, was built first as a demarcation of territory by the Qin Dynasty, but also as a defense against the Xiongnu. Actually, the beginnings of the walls were built by the separate kingdoms even before then, around 800 BCE, to protect against the nomads as well as each other. But the Qin in 221 BCE organized all the walls into one mostly continuous one running east and west. What do the Xiongnu have to do with Korea? Well, there is strong evidence that the Xiongnu and the Donghu, another nomadic tribe, were interacting a lot with Gojoseon and might even have been related. Here's a quote from writer No. Quote, the Xiongnu remains discovered in the Sogam, Sogamri tomb near Pyongyang and in other places bear witness to the existence of interactions between the two states. Unquote. So back to our story. Uh, we'll get to the details of the war in just a minute, but first let's talk about why Han China attacked Gojoseon. As a review in 195 BCE, Lu Wan, the king of Yan, is implicated in a plot of rebellion against the new emperor of Han. He, flew, he flees to the Xiongnu, but his general, Wiman, instead goes to the Gojoseon, where he would go on to usurp power from King Jun. Though there was already some bad blood between the Han and Gojoseon. After all, one of their most wanted men has not only found safe harbor in Gojoseon, but managed to take it over as his own. Sometime later, according to the Shiji, Wiman is charged 
with the duty of defending the border from neighboring barbarians for the for the Han. He's enfuffed as an outer vassal of the Han Empire and supplied with iron weapons on the condition that he would refrain from blocking the passage of those tribes wishing an audience with the emperor. Wiban used this advantage to subjugate neighboring polities, including Jinban, which occupied what is now the bulbous territory between Pyongyang and Seoul, and Imdun. Meanwhile, in 133 BCE, the Han Dynasty has declared an all-out war on the Xiongnu over raids, incursions, and just general conquest of land. In fact, when you look at archaeology and history, the raids are occurring both ways at this point. Especially uh, beginning in the Zhou Dynasty, you have some very aggressive, quote-unquote, ethnic Han who are trying to expand the border northward. And they're starting to encroach on the territories of tribespeople like the Xiongnu. It went both ways. The Xiongnu were also trying to press uh, southward as well. Meanwhile, in 133, uh, right, so by 109 BCE, Wiman's grandson, Uga, is the king of Gojosan. But by then, all formal diplomatic relations with Han ceased to exist. So sometime between when Wiman was enfuffed as a quote-unquote outer vassal by the Han dynasty and his grandson, they've broken off all relations. And historians postulate that it's because Gojo-san had attained enough skill in how to produce iron weapons that they were getting, you know, a little, maybe a little cocky with themselves. And they were trying to assert their independence as well. They're trying to say they don't really need the Han anymore. But the problem is, they were sitting in between the Korean states to the south, including one called Jinban, and uh, the Donghu and the other Manchurian tribes to the east. Because when you look at the center of power for Gojosan, it sits right around the Laodong Peninsula, which is basically in between the Han Dynasty and the rest of Manchuria and the Korean Peninsula. So they are, in essence, the the gatekeeper, and what it seems like is that they are now um, either demanding a very high toll for other tribes to deal with the uh, Chinese, or you know who went, who knows what exactly went on, but they were trying to assert their their regional might. So Han attacked either because a the ruler Wiman was blocking or Uga I should say was blocking access from other polities to the emperor, b. Han was actually afraid Gojoseon would align with the Xiongnu, or C, some overzealous military officers got carried away and didn't try hard enough to negotiate. And you'll see that it's a little bit of all three of those. The Xiongnu were a real threat to the Han dynasty, and so the last thing they wanted was for Gojoseon to team up with them. And you're going to see something pretty similar to that in the 12th and 13th century when um, the Song dynasty um, tries to get Goryeo to side with them against the against the encroaching Jin Empire. For the details of this attack, I will be reading almost exclusively from Ancient History of the Manchuria by Li Mosul. This is because I haven't found a lot of details of the Han Gojoseon War in English anywhere else. The Wikipedia entry itself is very scant in details, um, which is very disappointing because we have the full text of the Shiji in Chinese which describes the war in quite some detail. I'm sure there's a lot of Korean or Chinese language 
translations of the Shiji that speak about it in detail, but in, in terms of English, I haven't found much. I haven't found any details on the writer Lee Mosul either. I do know that he is a Korean-American uh, doctor of medicine who practiced in the States for a while and seems to be an amateur enthusiast, enthusiast of the Chinese classics. He basically read the Shiji in its original classic Chinese form in order to provide a Korean perspective to a work that is obviously well covered by Chinese historians. Luckily, he wrote an English language version of his work, and uh, it seems to be self-published. So the year of 109 BCE was one of turmoil, especially in Manchuria slash Korea. What's happening is the Xiongnu have newly unified and are really providing um, a lot of pushback to the Han dynasty, which itself is newly unified as well, or relatively uni uh, newly unified. And so they're at war. Meanwhile, you have all these refugees caught in between that are um, traveling or trying to get into Gojosan because Gojosan is kind of the gateway to the peninsula. The peninsula itself, itself is not a uh, war zone yet. So it's relatively more peaceful. So people are trying to get it, get in there. But at the same time, you have a the grandson of Wiman, Uga, who has never paid any tribute to the emperor. He had broken a pact between his grandfather and the eastern Han commandery official by blocking envoys from the other polities around Gojosan, including the Jen, Bo, and Jinbun. Weiman must have controlled the trade route from the Han to parts of Manchuria and the peninsula. And in 109 BCE, we're on our seventh ruler of the Han dynasty, Emperor Wu. He's 48 years old when this happens and had been ruling for 32 years, having been enthroned at the age of 16. He would go on to reign for a total of 54 years, the longest of any ethnic Han emperor in, China, in Chinese history. So he sent a, an official envoy, and I'm going to try to pronounce it uh, in the Chinese, She He, in Korean it's Sub Ha, as the official envoy to Uga, to presumably issue a cease and desist. She He fails to get a deal done and is escorted out of Gojoseon. Right as he reaches the border called Pei Creek, which uh, which we now know as, which we now guess is Amnokgang, or the Yalu River, which is the the river that separates North Korea from China. Shur orders his troops to kill the Joseon escort. He quickly escapes across the river and disappears into the safety of the fortress. Shur sends notice to the court that he has killed the Joseon escort, and he is rewarded with the title of Commander of the Laodong Commandery. Joseon understand understandably gets angry, mobilizes its troops, and attacks and kills Shur Her. The way this is written in the Shiji makes it seem very simple, but for a Joseon force to attack and kill the envoy within a commandery requires a major battle. Using the death of his envoy as a pretext, Emperor Wu launches an attack on the capital of Gojoseon. This is a major offensive. The first line of the Shiji describing this attack is, quote, the emperor gathered the criminals to attack the Joseon, unquote. It seems that Emperor Wu has forced or otherwise conscripted an army of criminals, or at the very least, defeated enemies into his army. This is relevant, as you'll see in a minute. There are two main branches to the attack. In the autumn, Yang Pu, 
or Yangbok, um, as it's pronounced in Korean, the commanding officer of the Han Navy sails along the shore of Chi, or basically the southern shoreline of Shandong province, with 50,000 soldiers through Bohai Bay, which is a body of water, uh, to arrive at the battlefield. A few days afterwards, the left branch of the army under commanding general Shun, uh, Shun Ji is deployed from Laodong and reaches the capital. He commands Uga to surrender. King Uga m- refuses, moves from the capital city Wanggam to the fortress. As Lee writes, back in those days, there were two ways to protect the royal family. The first was to make the capital city itself a fortress. This was more common if it were located on a flat field. They would construct a moat around a stone wall. However, if the capital were located near mountainous terrain, they would usually build a separate fortress in the mountains. Lee theorizes that Wang Hom was the latter. Uga himself had two main military branches to defend. While we know there were 50,000 troops under Yang Pu, as the Shiji describes, the Shiji doesn't specify how many were under General Shanji. However, we know that Yang Pu was subordinate to Shanji, therefore, Li concludes that Shunji's force was likely larger, so that the total force is over 100,000 strong. An officer named Da from the Laodong Division led the first assault, but was defeated so badly that many of his soldiers fled the battlefield, and here we see the relevance of a largely unwilling army. Da is executed for this failure. Next, an army of 7,000 soldiers from Qi, or Shandong, are the first from their branch to arrive at the capital. Uga, seeing that there aren't that many soldiers, quickly led an army to meet them in battle and defeated them. Many of the Han soldiers ran away into the mountains and hid for 10 days. Only later were they regrouped. Shanji attacked the western branch of Uga, but was unable to defeat them or advance. So let's take a step back and realize what just happened here. The fledgling Korean state of Gojoseon has repelled the mighty Han army, all 100,000 of them. And to give you a sense of how formidable this Chinese army was, the bona fides of both Chinese generals, Shunji and Yang Pu, are well documented. Shunji was from the Taiwan region, a mountainous region in the heart of northern China in present-day Shanxi, and had gained a reputation as a fierce warrior, no doubt having gained experience in mountain terrain fighting as well as fighting the fierce nomads to the north. He may even had, have had some Shanrong blood himself. Shanrong is a fierce nomadic tribe from that area. They are related to the Donghu, and the Donghu are actually uh, related tangentially to the Koreans. Yang Pu was even more accomplished. In 112 BCE, he had gained renown as a general who defeated the southern barbarians in what is today northeast Hong Kong, northeast of Hong Kong, and as re- his reward was appointed as a marquee of a region called Jiangliang. And uh, this wouldn't be the last time China would come up against the fierce defense of the Koreans, as you'll see in, in later episodes. What happens next, according to the Shiji, however, is a bit confusing. So I'll read Li's direct translation of the Shiji with a, f- a few minor edits to clean up, clean up his English. Quote, by realizing that these two generals couldn't accomplish their missions, the emperor sent his envoy Wei Shan to pers- uh, persuade Uga to surrender by demonstrating massive military buildup as a threat. As soon as Uga realized that he had met the real envoy from the emperor in his domain, he was delighted and made a sincere apology, apology by saying, 
I intended to surrender to the emperor, but was afraid those two generals might kill me. Now, by knowing the emperor's personal note is genuine, I want to surrender. Unquote. Uga then sent his son, the crown prince, towards the emperor's court with a sincere note of apology, along with 5,000 horses and grain to supply the Han's military. Right as the 10,000 fully armed Gojoseon troops were about to pass Pei Creek, the emperor's envoy, Wei Shan, concerned that these troops might cause trouble, and knowing that the crown prince had already surrendered anyway, asked the Joseon army to disarm themselves. This spooked the crown prince, who was afraid the Han generals might try and uh, try to trick and kill him. Uh, so he decided not to cross the river, but to return home. When Wei Shan reported this to the emperor, he was executed. Commanding General Shen Ji destroyed the northern branch of the Gojoseon army and then proceeded back towards the castle. This time, instead of attacking from the east, which was well guarded, he went around up into the mountains, broke the defenders there, and then crossed down across the border to the northwestern side of the fortress. By this time, the Han forces had surrounded the fortress on the north, south, and west. King Uga held firm as before, and several months passed. King Uga dispatched messengers to both generals. Commanding General Shunji refused to negotiate and prepared for a massive attack. But Navy General Lu Xuan, and his name changed for some reason in these in these histories. I don't know if he's the same Navy general or if he's, a, if he's a different one. But anyway, the Navy general, stinging from, stinging from the defeat by the Joseon earlier, met privately with the Joseon, hoping for a peaceful resolution. Commanding General Shanji sent a message demanding the Joseon surrender, but they told him they were negotiating with Navy General Liu. The emperor, realizing that he was about to face yet another failure, angrily remarked that he had already tried to send Wei Shan, the envoy, to demand Uga to surrender, and that Wei Shan couldn't get a deal done, and instead clashed with the commanding general. So this time, the emperor sent the governor of Qi, Gong Son Do, giving him ultimate authority to speak on behalf of the crown. When envoy Gong arrived, commanding general Shan told him that he had planned multiple times for an all-out assault of the fortress, but each time the Navy general had refused. He further told him that he suspected the Navy general was planning to betray the Han Empire by siding with the Joseon. Envoy Gong agreed with his suspicions and on behalf of the emperor, ordered the Navy general to report to the commanding general, give up his arms, and hand over control of his entire force to the commanding general. Having accomplished this, Envoy Gong reported to the emperor and was promptly executed for his trouble. Commanding General Shun, now in charge of the 100,000 or so force, led both branches in a fierce assault of the fortress. King Uga still refused to surrender. However, his chief advisors, namely the Prime Minister Lo Yin, or No Yin in Korean, Minister Han Um, and this is very from the Han Kingdom, and you'll recognize the symbol for the Chinese symbol for Han is actually the same one that we used for the official name for the Republic of Korea, the Han Minguk. Uh, not to be confused with the Han Empire of China. Those are two very different uh, Chinese characters, and they just happen to be have the same romanization. A minister named Sam from uh, Nishi, and someone named Yi Ge, and a general Wang Qian, or in Korean it's pronounced Wang Gyup. They all got together secretly. They wanted to surrender to the Navy General, and, 
but now that he was out of the picture, they saw the writing on the wall. A few of them escaped and surrendered, but Lo Yin died during the effort. The next summer, the Minifernigi sent an assassin who kills King Uga and then surrenders on behalf of the kingdom. But the capital doesn't surrender because there are some loyal vassals continuing to resist the Han. Commanding General Shun sends an envoy to the son of Uga, whose name is uh, Zhang Hang. Meanwhile, the son of a prime minister, Tre, reaches out to the general public to um, imploring them to kill the leader of the holdouts, Sangsa, which they do. And with this, finally, Han has conquered Joseon. It's taken about a year. Han sets up four commanderies, which we will discuss in the next episode, and enfuffs Sam as marquis, while Um, Hum, and Zhang Hang are also enfuffed, as is uh, Jue. The victorious commanding general Shun, the decorated, battle-hardened warrior from the mountain, mountainous region of Shanxi, is summoned to the court. He is accused of the crime of jealousy, competing for war trophies, and failing to accomplish his mission, and is put to death. Navy General Liu was also called to court and was stripped of all his title, but was spared his life because he paid some enormous monetary penalty. The writer Li would wryly point out that this is the only time in Chinese history that a commanding general would be punished by death for bringing victory to the emperor. Li believes this shows the true, cold, terrific nature of not just Emperor Wu, but of the Han Dynasty, the cold-blooded mercilessness, one in which the emperor is next only to God, one in which his word is final, and in which his judgment is mercurial and arbitrary, arbitrary like a supernatural power. Lee also speculates that perhaps the court viewed the commanding general at long last as a non-ethnic Han and that having used him, disposed of him. So that's a somber note that we'll end on for this episode. China's first attack on Korea is an uncoordinated, uncoordinated, messy affair. At times, it seemed like an episode of Keystone Cops. And while it's funny to hear about it, it's not so funny to learn about the the toll that it takes on the individuals responsible for it. We are seeing, in essence, the beginnings of a great empire and the intolerance for imperfection that such an empire requires. For the Koreans, we see just the beginnings of an unending series of attacks. Hidden in the Shiji's accounts are the untold amount of suffering borne by the civilians of Gojo-san. So with that, until next time, take care. Thank <laughs> you.